This is Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. This is Jonathan Doolin here again with Dr. Stan May to discuss some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. We are in the kingdom era. Um, David has been anointed as king. Um, We'll talk about his flight from Saul and these things in today's questions. But the first question that we see is, why does David go to Kilah, and what happens when he seeks God's guidance for every decision? Jonathan, one of the fun stories of the Bible is the life of David. Watching David flee, well, on the one hand, I feel a sympathy for him because he's having to flee from Saul. Yet on the other, I see the life lessons God is teaching him that he probably would never learn any other way. One of the early lessons that he demonstrates here is he he shows that even though he's in flight from Saul, he's not neglected his responsibility to protect the people. When he was Saul's general, He led the army out to fight the Philistines. Word comes to him that the Philistines are attacking Kilah. What is he to do? He could leave it to Saul, but David is a man, and David is a leader, and David is courageous. And so David seeks the Lord, and he says, Lord, do I go to Kilah? And the Lord says, yes, go and deliver them. And his men say, we can't do this. We'll be exposed. We'll be vulnerable. And so David, once again, turns to the Lord. Instead of listening to his men, he Well, he listens to them, he hears their concern, but then he takes it back to God. Instead of letting their words override what God has said, he goes back to God, and God affirms that he is to go. And when he goes, God gives him victory, and he experiences a great victory. And then he says the strangest prayer, will the people of Kyla deliver me to Saul? And the Lord says, yes, they will. And even though David has given Kyla deliverance from the Philistines and God strikes them with a mighty blow through David, still um, David realizes he has to flee and so they end up fleeing. The next question is from the the next day's reading. Uh, Jonathan finds David when Saul cannot. What does this reveal about God's power to protect his people? Again, these stories are so fascinating. Here is Saul searching for for David with several thousand select men, many of whom are probably secretly loyal to David. They've followed him as their general. He's given them victory after victory. They've listened to Saul whine. And and there's a great deal of disappointment in the lives of some of these men. And so they're not too anxious to find David. Plus, they know that finding David means they find 400 warriors, which means their lives could be forfeit in this. And they're not, they're not that interested in fighting. So they may not be looking too hard for David, but Saul is. And yet Jonathan can find him. Saul cannot. Jonathan can. Well, this tells us that Jonathan is trusted by David's people. More than likely, he's told where he is. And he finds him in the wood, and he doesn't tell his father because he's made a covenant with David. He knows what God's doing. He even tells David, I know you will be king one day. He recognizes what God is doing. Well, what this teaches us is that when God knows that when God is watching over us and protecting us, he knows exactly where we are. He can protect us from the enemy. And so, for example, you mentioned to me and you brought out a great point in missions. We have people that are maybe in closed countries, 
people who can't publicly announce that they're missionaries, but they're there serving the Lord. And what we see is, is that God brings to them people that are interested in spiritual things and protects them from people who are not. Now, this tells us as believers that one of our tasks is to pray specifically for our missionaries for that kind of protection. Because just as there are Jonathans who come to do good, there are also Saul's who are seeking to do harm. Hmm. Amen. Uh, another thing, just on Jonathan and David's relationship there, the fact that Jonathan knows David will be king and wants him to be king means even before he knows the fate that he's going to face, he knows he's not going to be king. Yes. Isn't that odd that he's willing to forego being king because he recognizes the marks of kingship upon David? He probably knows of his anointing. He certainly knows of his victory over Goliath. He knows of his leadership in the army. Jonathan is a man's man. He's one of my heroes, and yet he respects David. Amen. Uh, Next, I want to combine two questions. We see a question like this from the 17th and again on the 18th. Why does David spare Saul's life, not once, but twice? Again, I learned so many lessons from the life of David. One of the things I love about this story is that Saul comes seeking David twice. The Lord, it appears, puts Saul in the hand of David to do as he will. He's in the cave. Saul is there attending to his needs, which means Saul is probably unarmed and vulnerable, exposed, But instead of doing anything, David actually protects Saul from his men who say, let's kill him. We can stop this right now. Twice, David says, no, no one can put their hand against the Lord's anointed and remain guiltless. David understood several things about this. David understood that it was God who had put Saul as king and that to touch him would bring the judgment of God. Therefore, he was afraid to touch him. He understood that it was God, who was allowing him to have this experience to teach his men to honor leaders. And what's amazing is, is in the northern kingdom years later, we'll see that dynasty after dynasty topples, many of them at the hands of their successors. They go in and kill the king so that they can take over in their place. But in the Davidic line, that doesn't happen. Very few of David's descendants are killed by treachery. And this, what this shows is, is that this lesson that David teaches passes on. One last truth that I love about this is as I was studying this passage, the Lord showed me very clearly that even though David could have escaped, he learned a valuable lesson. He learned this, that it is better to endure the heat of circumstances than the fire of consequences. While the heat of circumstances molds David into the man God wants him to become, the fire of consequences would break him and hurt him. And David is spared from that by this wise decision not to touch the Lord's anointed. Amen. Amen. Next, uh, kind of in a similar vein, how does David treat the messenger who reports Saul's death? And what does this teach us about the value of honoring God's chosen leaders? When When Saul dies, everyone thinks that David's going to rejoice. But that's not what happens. When the word comes that Saul has died and Jonathan has died, David and his men actually go into a period of mourning. They weep over him. The men of Jabesh Gilead honor uh, Saul by taking his body away from the Philistines and burying it properly, burning the bones and burying it properly. And David 
hears of this of Saul's death and confirms it through an Amalekite of all people. And the Amalekites whom Saul was commanded to destroy, instead, one of them becomes the messenger who not only announces Saul's death to David, but actually caused it on the battlefield. Saul is pleading. He's at the point of death. And the Amalekite admits that he stabbed him through, took his crown, and brought it to David. Instead of defending Saul, he, he does the evil thing and kills him and then brings his crown to David in the hope that it will give him credibility with David. It does not. In fact, you know the story David slaughters him to avenge Saul's death. And really, this is the old, this is the old principle of the avenger of death. Next, how do the mighty men show the hand of God on their lives, and what lessons do they offer for leaders today? Again, David just keeps on teaching the lessons, doesn't he? It's so amazing, because you see in 1 Samuel 22, 2, David takes this ragtag army. I mean, it's 400 men. The first 400 of his men are, the Bible describes them in three terms. Some of them are in distress. Some of them are in debt. Some of them are discontented. This does not sound like the raw material for building a great army. And yet David's leadership crafts out of this core an army that rivals any army on earth at the time of David's rule. And he creates men who are transformed by his leadership. They watch his faith and they see it and they become men of great faith. The Bible says uh, again and again in those stories, the Lord was with them. And so he's able to jump in the pit and kill the lion and slay, slay the Egyptian and take his own spear from him and kill him and, or st- stand in the field and fight till his hand clings to his sword and he can't even let it go. He's so tired. And they do this because they watch David's faith. They follow David's lead and his leadership. They see David standing before them, not behind them, not leading from behind as a general barking out orders, but up there in the front fighting with a ferocity and a passion that inspires and motivates them. And then they act out his courage and Even if you remember the beautiful story, you know, where the three mighty men go to Bethlehem and get water for him because they, just because he wants some, just wishing, and his wish is their command. And they happily go do that. And David is so embarrassed that he pours it out. He says, this is their blood. I couldn't even drink this. But I look and I think the joy of these three men running with excitement to just do something to honor their king. And Jonathan, it reminds me, this is the way our, we, our Lord wants us to love and follow Him, to be so excited to do something for Him, just to have that kind of joy to say, I get to do this for my King. What a gift. Amen. It's also just a simple reminder, something you alluded to at the beginning. You know, great men are not born. They're made. Yeah. yeah. Why does David give honor to Abner and Ishbosheth, both of whom are former enemies? David is teaching the nation powerful lessons. He is teaching them that he's not a vengeful, bloodthirsty, cruel man. He may be a great warrior. He may not be afraid to do anything, to fight, to take whatever dowry is required of the dowry story that we read in another place. David is ferocious in his fighting, but he's not ruthless. He's not vindictive. He's not cruel. He seeks to do the right thing. And because of that, David shows the people that even when Abner dies, He wouldn't mind it if Abner had died in a battle, if Abner had died as an honorable man, 
But because Abner was murdered, because Ishbosheth was murdered, David takes that personally and mourns for them and shows, and, and to say, this is not the kind of kingdom we're going to have. We're not going to have a kingdom of deceit and duplicity. We're going to have a kingdom of honor and warfare. Amen. Lastly, when David consults his generals about moving the ark of God, whom does he fail to consult? And what is the consequence of this action? And why is it so severe? In First Chronicles 13, it tells us that he does. He, can, he gets all the generals together. He gets the leaders of the nation. He doesn't get the Levites, and he doesn't open the word. And when he doesn't open the word, he doesn't find the right way to carry the ark of God. As you and I know from our reading and what God has taught us is that there was only one way that the ark was transported. The Philistines may put it on a cart. The Philistines had stolen it in war and captured it in war and put it on a cart. But God's people were not to carry the ark on a cart. And God was teaching them the holiness of the ark. We know that the ark was to be wrapped up by the high priest before even the Levites could look on it. And yet, here's the ark in open display, and David did not look in the Word of God to see how it should be carried, even though it was clearly delineated. In fact, when he comments on this later, he says, it's because we did not consult God that this error broke out against us. David knew that he failed to consult the Lord. And so the judgment of that is anyone who looks on the ark would die. That was, that was all along. That was the judgment all along. And so it only happened, God was merciful in that only Uzzah died when he touched it. And so it was a life lesson that God was teaching his people, reminding them afresh that the place where holy God meets with sinful men is a sacred place. It's not to be touched with human hands, only with blood. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. May. Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the Word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One Year Chronological Study Bible.